Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Oh my god, Troy. <laughs> she's still alive. She's still alive. No, she's oh my goodness. <laughs> she's definitely dead. <laughs> well, it but sounds she, exactly like her. She's, it, she's oh living. Oh my god. She's living for this episode. I've been working on that. <laughs> I can minute. tell. I mean, I literally thought I had I was playing the movie for a second. I, <laughs> bless her. I love her. I love her. You know, she is a queen in her own right, yeah. little Zelda Rubenstein. She she uh, you know, has carved out her little place in horror history with Poltergeist, the Poltergeist franchise. She's been in all of them. Uh, she was also in Anguish. I don't know if you ever had the pleasure of seeing Anguish, which is like a movie within a movie. Uh, she's in that, and then remember when she hosted uh, "Scariest Places on Earth"? Oh my God! She had the icon. perfect voice for that. Yeah, An so icon. rest in peace, Zelda Rubenstein. You are a treasure. Well, and let's also keep in mind that when we are a horror film podcast, we are also a, a queer themed podcast. You know, we're both gay men, and she also needs to be acknowledged for her constant uh, support and activism early into the kind of the AIDS epidemic, she was a, a huge supporter uh, at a time when not everybody was. And in fact, you see her in a lot of the promotional material for safe sex and so forth, photographed alongside gay men in skimpy scenarios. Like she's like the little mother scolding them. Um, she was super groundbreaking in her own right. And um, just really cool, unique person. So yeah, definitely lots of reasons to celebrate her. We stand. Zelda, we love her, and Tangina again, one of the most memorable characters from a horror franchise, I would say for sure. Uh, particularly her her stint in the first film, uh, arguably, you know, like I said, one of the most memorable secondary characters to make an appearance in an '80s film period, I would say. But we are not talking about the first film because we here at Dark Knight on the podcast, as you've come to find out, like to do things all kinds of ass backwards. We like to pick and choose from franchises and just willy-nilly do them. So we are starting with Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. And Roger, I you know, I used to be obsessed with this film when I was a kid. I, I probably watched this VHS tape. Oh my goodness. I don't even want to know how many times. At least two dozen. I could recite this film verbatim and I don't know what it was about this film that as a little, as little Troy just attracted me so much to it. I will say though, it's been years since I've seen it years. 
I, I think it's got to the point where I kind of got sick of watching it. So I kind of put it on the back burner, put it out of my mind for a long time. But I felt like this was the perfect opportunity to pull it back out and give it a fresh look with with new new eyes, a new perspective. Grown adult Troy, who has whatever, has all this knowledge and experience that I did not have as a child. And let me tell you, it was quite an eye-opening experience. Wow, really? I, I I knew you were a fan of the film. I didn't know like to the extent, though, how much you knew about it. I know you're a fan of the original film as well. Yes, the original film is one of my top five favorite horror films of all time because it's a fucking phenomenal piece of filmmaking. This one, I don't know. As a child, this one spoke to me for some reason, and I, I don't know what it was, but... Again, now looking at it now, I, I can say that maybe my perspective on it has shifted a little bit. Uh, so I'm excited to get into it and really just talk my way through my feelings about the film now. But you know what's even more exciting, Roger? And we're gonna I'm gonna ask my, our listeners a huge favor: is that we are barreling towards our 100th episode, and if you are a patron. If you've, if you've subscribed to our Patreon, you already know what our 100th episode is because that's one of the perks of our Patreon is we post what our film selections are for each month prior to the month so you guys get to know what, what we're covering that month ahead of time. So you guys already know. If you are curious to know what our 100th pick is, head on over to darknightofthepodcast slash patreon.com. Subscribe. You'll get access to that. You'll get access to right now. We I counted it. We have like 48 total actual episodes up there exclusive episodes exclusive to patreon i waste two dollars a day i waste ten dollars a day on a lavish cup of coffee i always have to treat myself to a latte every morning i could literally scrounge quarters up and afford to listen to this quality material i mean some of these titles i am sorry Shame on us for not releasing them to the goddamn fucking public. We're selfish. But you know what? We've decided to give our friends over at the Patreon some really tasty treats. And I want you all to be able to enjoy this sweetness. So I really suggest you listen to Troy. You consider throwing a couple pennies in our cups and we'll fucking dance for you, won't we, Troy? Oh yeah, it helps us out quite a bit too. We're 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 putting that we're putting those funds towards fun things like uh, merchandise and things that we can have available like at the Houston Horror Film Festival when we are there in August. But really, that's not. I'm not trying to plug the patron. What I really wanted to ask is this. This is something that you can do for us for absolutely zero for, for free. Just takes maybe two seconds of your time because we're almost to 100 episodes. And I think that's a huge, huge milestone. I mean, most podcasts, let's be honest, most podcasts don't make it this long. And to be honest with you, Roger, when we started it, I did not think we were going to make it to 100 episodes, but we are going full force. We're just, we're, we're in it for the long haul. We've, we've talked about it. We are in it for the long haul. One thing I want to do, because right now on Apple Podcasts, which is like the, the, the most used podcast, you know, app out there, one way that podcasts get found easily in Apple Podcasts is by the number of ratings they have. And right now we have 43 ratings, most of them five stars. There's a two, there's a three star one and a one star one. That one star one, fuck off. I don't know who did it, but whatever. What we're asking you to do is just go to Apple Podcasts, hit that little five star rating and write a review if you want, but you don't even have to write a review. Just hit that five star rating. I want to try to get to 50. 50 
ratings by our 100th episode. So it gives you some time. But if you could take just a split second and do that, I mean, I think it would mean the world to us for our 100th episode. It's just a little thing that we get excited about. I know it might seem silly to you, but it actually helps people find us on Apple Podcasts through searching. So that, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Leave it at that. I think now, Roger, we we are chomping at the bits to get discussing Poltergeist 2, unless there's something you want to share before we get into the film. I would just say I think our listeners are fabulous. And I want to thank them. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope, I really hope that all of our listeners took the time to watch this film because I really think that this, I mean, every film needs to be seen in order to be, uh, I think, properly discussed. But some some of the titles we've done, I mean, I think you could just listen to us banter and it's going to keep you entertained. This one, this film is an example of, of having the success of a movie and then coming back to the drawing board and saying, we're going to throw every fucking thing we have at the wall and hope some of it sticks and some of it does, but some of it does it does not. And, and, and what shocks me at the end of the day is just how different of a movie this is from the first film. Yes. I do appreciate that is it is a continuation of the story. You know, it picks up a year after the original film with most of the same cast, primarily the Freeling family, with the exception of Dana, who is played by Dominic Dunn, who unfortunately between Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2 was strangled to death by her boyfriend. Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Dark. it's a it, it's a sore subject. I mean, yeah, because he only served like 4 years in prison. Um and he yeah, she was in an abusive relationship. He showed up to her house one night when she was studying with some friends. He pulled her outside and they got into a heated argument and he dips choking her to death right in her driveway right at the side of the house. And yeah, he claimed that it was heat of the moment passion. So he literally got like four years in prison. Her father, Dominic Dunn, took that experience and became a massively successful true crime author and true crime correspondent. Uh, He's, if you are a big true crime fan, like I am, you definitely know the name Dominic Dunn. He got into true crime because of his daughter's murder. She was kind of the first of the whole, you know, we can not spend much time on it, but like there's that whole story of like the poltergeist curse. Oh, yeah. We've all heard it, right? There, it's, there's a whole segment of that cursed films on Shudder that deals with poltergeist. And she is like one of the prominent examples when people talk about the curse of that curse is the fact that she was, was murdered by her boyfriend. And, and then, of course, the fate that befell poor little Heather O'Rourke. Oh yeah. The fate that befell Julian Beck shortly after uh, filming this, he plays Reverend Kane. He died of stomach cancer. The fate that befell um, Will Sampson who passed away shortly after filming Poltergeist too. There's just like that long legacy of things and people that were involved that were passed away. Now, whether you believe that or not, totally up to you, but that is the, that's the absence of Dominic Dunn's character. What I do find I don't know, sort of, I don't know if you got felt the same way. What I do find sort of insulting to her memory, Dominic Dunn, knowing what happened to her, that she's not even mentioned in this film. Like there's, there's no mention of, oh, Dana went to college. There's no mention of her at all. It's like she never existed. And I find that rather insulting, to be honest with you. I wonder if they feel like it was... Because, like, I mean, I want to say like, the material, it's not like it's like a slasher where people are getting gutted, but it's still, like, very uncomfortable. You're you're dealing with, like, you know, 
spirits and 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 just like the, this whole other world, like after death and everything. And I wonder if they just were hesitant, at least within the time in which this was made. I wonder if it felt like a little too taboo because because her death was so awful. I mean, I st- I mean, I think they could have mentioned the Dana character. I'm not specifically talking about the actress, but the, the the fact that they don't even mention that this the daughter Dana character at all throughout the film is rather, like I said, just a, a very odd choice and insulting to the character. Let's forget about the actress. It's just insulting the character. Dana in the first film was was kind of a big part of it, and I understand what transpired might be uncomfortable, but there still could have been a mention of it instead of pretending like she never even existed. Um, it just seemed weird to me besides that. Yeah, this is a completely different film. It's directed of course, by a director who before this film had very little directorial film experience. He was primarily known for directing music videos, Brian Gibson. So you can definitely see some of that influence pulled over into this film, but yeah, it's a completely different animal than poltergeist. And I mean, right away, the film begins with the introduction of a character that becomes a prominent figure throughout the film who is Taylor played by Will Sampson, probably best known for one flew over the cuckoo's nest who is capable in this capable. I mean, we can have a discussion about stereotypes because I think it's really hard to discuss this character and his whole purpose in the film without going there. Yeah, there's, you know, it's there's a lot of little moments that blip up here and there over the course of this film that do feel very dated, socially feel really dated. Uh, unfortunately, it almost all falls upon Stephen's shoulders. Um, and, and so... Well, there is actually a moment, too, with Diane when she says something that actually I was like, oh, God, yeah, that's not cool. But there, the whole, there's, I mean, again, they're taking the whole, and you can, we can discuss whether it's, What's the word I'm looking for? Exploitative, stereotypical, but they're using Native American lore as a, a huge backbone to this film, right? Uh, the film opens with with Taylor driving out to this remote area in the in the desert. He's meeting some older uh, Native gentlemen, and they begin some some chanting among the flames and all of a sudden through, through this chanting, these like spirits come out of the flames and they surround. They surround Taylor and there's this moment where the older gentleman is just chanting really hard and you get and it, all of these white spirits are flying around and one actually goes into Taylor's mouth. And then the old man gives him like this decorative stick. Lance, I guess is what it is. And he just kind of disappears. Did I see that right? Is, is it insinuated that he was a spirit himself? I was very puzzled. It is an unexpected start to this film kind of considering like how the last film concluded i remind me and i don't know if i'm correct in saying this i don't i well i I know obviously it was over a cemetery and so forth um they didn't fall on the crutch of like the native american aspect with the original film did they did it it never played into that correct no right absolutely not yeah no the whole the whole basis of the first film was that the the freelings house was just built over a cemetery that the developer only moved the tombstones and left the coffins there because if you remember the whole ending of the first film that beautiful that wonderful set piece of all the coffins busting through the floor and stuff with the bodies falling out and the body makes what then becomes the (laughs) the focus of this film seem not 
doesn't mesh. It doesn't connect. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and I feel like, you know, the whole, like, Native American burial ground aspect, it feels generic. It feels, like, trotted on before. Like, it doesn't add anything. Going this route, going this direction with the approach to the material really doesn't add anything to it. And not like I don't want to see some wonderful representation of Native American culture in in a ghost story. I think those, those moments can be quite horrifying. But in this specific story, because it's played... I mean, it's played a bit over the top. Everything about this movie is over the top. And so there is a lot of like dialogue and moments with this character of Taylor, whom it feels like is very much made to be a stereotype, though he is quite likable and very well-intentioned. His purpose there, everything he says, everything he does looks like somebody who doesn't really have a full grasp of how the culture would play into these things. It takes that basic concept and it's like, okay, and I'm going to write what I think that would be like. And that's what we get from the character. Yeah. It's very like color by numbers, what you would expect when you're dealing with a native American character who is supposed to then be taking his personal experiences, personal culture and applying it to what is happening to the Freeling family. It just seems this whole element just seems really forced to me this time around and i i I just am wondering like what the mentality was when when coming up with this story because like i said it then at the end of the day it doesn't mesh with with the first film what we found out in the first film it almost becomes its own story which i i get with a sequel you want to have your own story but taking it to like this weird i don't want to say extreme but just weird area just felt very odd to me and i feel like you know i'm gonna put this out on the table here because let's just say it poltergeist 3 is a terrible movie it's one of those movies i think that you can get some enjoyment out of watching because it's probably so bad it's good but it's a terrible movie i i feel like poltergeist could have easily just been should have been a standalone thing I feel like the complete story was told with Poltergeist. Yeah. The first one, we did not need Poltergeist two or three to come along. Yeah. It just sort of, you're never going to, to reach the, the magic that was the first film and, and this film, bless its heart. It tries and it succeeds at some things, but it doesn't, it doesn't enrich the story, Troy. It doesn't like, I think one thing about the first film is there's something about the mystery of the unexplained. You know, there's something about, the fact that at the end of the day, like you get a little bit of an explanation here. You have an idea, you know, the whole thing with like the, the, the cemetery beneath the house. Okay. That's creepy in in and of itself. I don't need there to be another layer to it. They're giving us too much. They're over explaining it. And in the over explanation, it loses a lot of its mystery and its intrigue. One thing that this movie suffers from right off the bat is the building suspense of what's going on within the house does not exist here. So they're like, their approach is like, okay, instead of trying to build suspense to this whole new scenario, we're just going to start, we're going to just come right out of the gate swinging. Like we are just going to very heavy handedly make it clear that this is a movie about possession right away. And it's 20 minutes in and you're getting like big sequences of houses getting destroyed and people fleeing and shit, you know, there's just not like a buildup like the first movie had. So I really think that the original film was uh, very much benefited 
off of that kind of more uh, slow burn approach to the beginning of the film. So it eventually built up to this great climax. This movie does not have that balance and it doesn't have that pacing either. And I think that's really a huge Achilles heel for this film is the pacing's kind of all over the place. You get moments that feel really fucking nice. They move really well. And then you have other moments where you're like, what the fuck is going on? I'm so overwhelmed. My senses are overloaded. It's it's just too much, too much going on. And there are several aspects of this film that are shoehorned in, and there are several characters that are shoehorned in that we will get to. But yeah, we are introduced to this whole new level of story right after uh, Taylor has this encounter with this elderly native that does the chanting whatnot because what he does is he gets in his truck and he drives to what we see as Cuesta Verde which is the housing um, addition from the first film now all the houses look pretty much boarded up most of them are for sale and he proceeds to then drive to the Freelings old well now it's just land because the house got destroyed at the beginning of the or at the end of the first film so it's just the lot he gets out and who greets him? Well, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tangina. What's her? Okay. I want to know what her ass is doing in this fucking swimming pool hole. It's been a year lady. Like, okay. So we're told it's a year. You try to tell me they're still hanging out in this goddamn swimming pool a year later. I think this excavation has been going on for a hot minute. Like one thing I appreciate about this movie is it doesn't like jump in and act like, it doesn't seem like people don't believe them that something happened. Clearly something fucking did. Their issues are like insurance companies refuse to claim it because it's such an absurd situation and they're they're saying that they're not going to take accountability for that. So I, I like the fact that like it's very clear that whatever happened here has had an effect on the community. You're right. This whole neighborhood, property values are plummeting in this neighborhood. It looks horrible, understandably so. Like lest we forget an entire house imploded and dissolved like in the last film at the end of the last film like it was quite an event and people like witnessed it so i'm sure that no one's debating it um and so i think what's going on here is we're really kind of seeing them really exploring further what's going on i like that as the starting point okay but not a year later i mean I'm this Detroit. is that- a house imploded <laughs> like I'm shocked there's not more scientists. Are you trying to tell me Tangina's been doing this every day for a year? She's leading it. Oh my God, that woman, don't fuck with her. (laughs) She's dug the hole herself. But she tells tells, uh, Samson that they finally found the core under the old swimming pool. And there's a presence down here, she says. So they climb down this ladder and he enters this like cave-like system that is full of skeletons. You would think... These skeletons, I'm sorry, Roger, these skeletons are in this cave for the majority of the film, which takes place over a course of a long time. So trying to tell me that like there would not be any like morgue or anybody that would want to come and get these skeletons and, and do something with them. They're just like leaving them down in this cave. I mean, I've, I'm sorry. I don't know if that if what's going on in this this hole is actually like legal or anyone's aware of it. You know, I don't think anyone's in on it. I just think Tangina's like, there's, there's something mysterious down here. Like, you know, she's curious about what's going on. Whatever motivated her to get her ass down there, she's discovered these fucking bodies. A recent reveal. The bodies, I mean, the thing about this movie is there are moments when it succeeds. And when it succeeds, like, I can't not acknowledge the fact that there are some really great 
designs, moment of, of gore, or not, not gore, I'm sorry, but moments of like, uh, you know, you've got these skeletal bodies, very similar to the last movie, and they look great. Oftentimes they look really fucking good. This whole moment with the slug dropping out of the mouth of the one of them, of Kane, like, oh, it looks great. He makes that noise, it's like, Yeah, I mean, it's not realistic, but it's a great fucking shot. Uh, it's a really good setup, kind of bringing me into this, to be honest. Like, I don't mind this opening, it just goes off the rails really fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it yeah. So she brings him down. She says that these, that um, basically they found the core. This is all of these people are, I guess, part of what, what the presence is. And then, yeah, we get a zoom in on the one that's like sitting at the front of him, and it, you, you get a slug that falls out of his mouth. And Taylor makes the comment. He's like, I've seen the him in my dreams. And then he says, Where's the family now? And we cut to our favorite suburban family terrorized by ghosts, the Freelings. They look fucking joyous, jovial. They're sitting amongst roses. They're eating um, peanut butter sandwiches with M&Ms with that goddamn dog. Ebus. Yeah, whatever the fuck that name is, Ebus. Um, Feeding them sandwiches. They're all laughing, having themselves a time, missing a daughter. You're correct. Never addressed. And then we get the 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 very elegant English accented grandmother played by Geraldine Fitzgerald. It's not even like English accent. It's like what is it? Yeah, it's mid Atlantic from like the from the nineteen forty. It's like when I would talk like this and like very Catherine Hepburn. I don't know what the fuck's going on with this accent. Yeah, I thought it was, okay, but I, all I remember I remember her from the Golden Girls episode where she plays Sophia's friend that wants to commit suicide. Remember oh, that? Wow, I don't remember that. But you're so good with Golden Girls <laughs> trivia. Like I need to get you to a goddamn Golden Girls trivia game <laughs> with, with some gaze and let you blow. Them away. It's her. It's Geraldine Fitzgerald. Um, but yeah, she is the grandmother. And they're just, yeah, they're having a gale time at this picnic table when the grandma's knitting when she asks little Carol Ann to hand her the red yarn. And so Carol Ann reaches into the yarn basket and just pulls out the red yarn. The grandma notices that, so she tests her again. Now hand me the yellow yarn. So Carol Ann digs in without even looking, digs into the basket and pulls out the yellow yarn. So now the grandmother realizes, oh, Carol Ann has some some powers going on. And that's it. Like, let's be clear. This grandmother, well, first of all, the, I'm sorry, but I think the grandmother looks like the fucking reverend. They look like the same fucking person. <laughs> they, look, they look like variations of each other. The grandmother is too similar looking to the reverend for me to trust her. At first, she's very suspicious, the grandmother. And, but she's the grandmother is, like, introduces, like, this... Force of just light and joy and positivity. And you're supposed to form this like kind of bond with the grandmother, I think. But you're given like maybe two scenes with her. And then, spoiler alert, she dies. She <laughs> The broad's dead within minutes. She's Give her five minutes and she's gone in this movie. And, but she's, and she's leading up to everything. She's like, oh, you've got powers with the mid-Atlantic accent. And, you know, bestowing uh, facts upon the little cherub carol ann telling her that she's got powers she could be anything she wants to be and then she fucking dies and for me as a viewer already emotionally i'm i'm very thrown off because they needed like a good four or five more scenes with this woman kind of nurturing this whole like power that exists within the family this whole kind of ability to you know connect with the dead i like that they're exploring carol ann's powers further 
cool approach, but like this needed this needed like three more drafts <laughs> before they finalized it because there is not enough time spent with this woman and it makes for what happens it makes it feel very like throwaway. Well, she okay, yeah, I was going to say this is one of the characters I feel is shoehorned in. She exists solely to have give the freelings another place to live a and then to be to expose this who carol ann has clairvoyant powers now and that's why these demon these spirits are so connected to her yeah she croaks and then once she's gone like you don't hear anything from her again until the like they don't have a funeral like there's no nothing she's like dies one morning and then she's gone there's no funeral there's no nothing it's so weird it's so weird it's weird was this rushed into production i don't know anything about this no movie. because like, this came okay so the original one was 1982 this was 86 oh my god that's unacceptable the the the, the that long went by and they this is all they managed to like shit out like and I'm, I'm not trying to be that harsh but like come on no but it's it's still not Poltergeist 3. Well, I know, That's... but I, listen, give me those goddamn ice cars in that parking garage any day <laughs> of the week. That should be the new tagline to this film. At least we're not Poltergeist 3. Yeah. I like it. There's, there's hints of good ideas in here, Troy. There are. Okay, there is. I like I like a lot of this movie, but like, there's stuff in it that just is glaringly just bad. And it's, it's bad. Like, you're right. The script. The script needed a couple more drafts i think to tighten it up quite a bit and just all of these weird just ideas that uh i, I don't know how about them using the word uh i hate I'm, I'm not, i can't even say it hold on how about them using the word for you know a mentally challenged individual i don't necessarily want to say the term because it's inappropriate but they're throwing it out loosey-goosey left and right here coming up in a second too like it, it just feels very um very dated a lot of this movie feels very dated i mean it's dated now but let's be on i mean I, i'll give the film i will personally give the film a pass for that because it was 80 it was 1986 and that's what kids said i mean i was guilty of it I, I, lots of kids my age were guilty of use that was a very common word to be to be used so i will give the film a pass then yeah listening to it now knowing what we know now and like the climate we're in yeah it's a little kind of jolt you when you hear him say it but it's robbie you know him and his dad are, are watching they're not watching tv they're listening to a baseball game and robbie is adamant that they need to get a tv and the dad says steven freeling says nope absolutely not we will not get a tv and that's when robbie says oh fine i'll just grow up the r word and then steven's like no you don't you don't become that from not watching tv and yeah, it's a little jarring now, but again, it was the 80s. That was very commonplace. I'm not excusing it, obviously, but I, I'm one of the people that believe that you, you know, you have to consider the time period a film was made and can't make knee-jerk reactions about it based on where we are now. I mean, yes, we want to look back on it and be like, yeah, that was, that's not appropriate now, but I think it's. I think it's the multitude of it, Troy. I think no, I think it's the fact, and it's not. I, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. But I think it's the the fact that there are multiple points in this movie that you have things that you look at and you kind of wince a little bit. And there's not a lot of movies I can think of overall, especially in the, the genre. I mean, there are occasional things where there's like, oh, you know, this specific moment stands out as kind of like 
poor in taste or this specific scene, they use this word that we would never use now. There are literally like a, a handful of those moments in this one movie. And so because of that, because it comes up so many times over the course of the film, it does make it something that's kind of like just notable about it. I agree with you. Like I, I don't hold it against the movie. It's a product of the times. I'm just surprised uh, how many things in this movie have not aged well. But is it that interesting though? Because you can pull any for any film from the eighties, I think, and watch it, and you're going to find lots of problematic things based on where we are now. I just think that's just the nature of of watching movies now, as in twenty twenty three. You know, you're looking at it from everything that's transpired now. Yes, there's there's things that are problematic. There's words that are used that are problematic. There's things that are problematic that are hinted at in this film that I was like, oh boy, that's like not even subtle so yeah so there's this scene where you know we're we're getting back to the connecting that they're never gonna have a tv based on the the first film the ending of the first film and then we cut to grandma asking carol ann about her drawings carol ann is having ma- making all these like creepy face drawings it looks like she's drawing the grandmother <laughs> it, well it's something right it's a demon or something and the grandmother asks if she wants to be an artist when she grows up and carol ann says well i don't want to grow up much and grandma's like, oh, don't say that. I, growing up's not bad. I've enjoyed every age I am. And in fact, when I was young, I realized I had a gift. And I could do things that other people could. And Caroline's like, well, like what? And she's like, I don't know. I just knew things. And she gives the example of like her mother lost her bracelet when she was a child and that she knew where it was. Two miles away from my home in a place I've never been. Caroline, do you often know things? The grandmother is Scatman Crothers, <laughs> is Dick Halloran in The Shining. She is the equivalent to that character, but given literally one tenth of the screen time. So, in this very brief, lovely moment between sweet, fawn eyed, absolute lamb of a child, Caroline, let's just acknowledge. It is so sad what happened to Heather O'Rourke because she really is an angelic portrayal of a child. Like, if I have a kid, I hope to God it's at least a tenth of what Heather O'Rourke is in these movies. She's so cute, like a button. She's so sweet. She's just this sweet little cherub, very well-intentioned, has a little bit of a sassy streak with her brother. Sometimes they argue. But overall, she's just so goddamn sweet. And this little moment between her and the grandmother is rather endearing. Um, I, I think they could have really built up for that ending to be something so much more emotionally impactful if they would have allowed these two specifically to uh, really establish more of that bond together other than that just one brief moment with yarn and this and that's all you get that's all you get with them it's very yeah this grandmother character i felt like could have really been a interesting part of the film and yeah they just they get rid of her so quickly and it's it's just like okay that's that's weird. And like, it's not like she's portrayed as like, like on her deathbed or something, you know, this is a capable woman. She's still out gardening. She's out doing things with the family. So it's like, it was very jarring when they decided to kill her off. I would, it would be completely different if she was introduced and she was like, you know, Oh, mother, grandmother has cancer. She's on, but no, this is a healthy woman. It's just a very weird, very weird. But then there's this whole scene, Roger, that I, 
could do without. I mean, I get it, but it, it was trying to like recreate that scene from the first film when we get uh, kind of a conversation with Diane and, and Steven in their bedroom when they're smoking pot, which I find very endearing. This one is very weird. I find like Craig T. Nelson's performance in this particular scene is just very awkward. Um, it's, it's when it's, he's off. Yeah. It's when she's telling him with Diane was revealing that the insurance company denied their claim, uh, because the house technically is just missing. And then he goes onto this, he goes on this rampage where he's going to write the insurance company. He's going to sign it, Mr. President. And we're the freaky freelings. It's like he was channeling like Chevy Chase from National Lampoon's vacation. And it just was not working for me at all. I'm like, this is odd. And plus his hair. I don't know if you noticed his hair is, oh, that yeah, his hair is different in this scene awesome. than it is the rest of the movie. Cottonwood. Yeah, well, I think they realize they're like, oh, he has fuck. a mullet. Let's cut it. I mean, off. God, that looks so bad. But I just, I don't like this. I, I thought, I think his performance here is really actually bad, and it's distracting. There's this moment where she likes, we're 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 broke, and he's like, oh, well, we might be broke, but we're not hungry. We're not on the street. We're gonna be the freaky freelings. And she's like, well, I don't like living off my mother. And then he begins like serenading her, and she's talking about cookie cookie garnish this girl i don't i don't know what the fuck's going on tell me more about her no yeah you're right you're right i agree on that i think you know i think one thing i want to acknowledge as a positive about the film is overall like they still as a couple like they have a chemistry together whether or not every scene hits i still like watching the two of them operate as a couple together um, you're right. Like this, this moment is, it's kind of big. Some of the dialogue feels like it just was written by a robot sometimes. Like I don't always understand where some of the motivation is coming from, but I do feel like they're trying to kind of create like a, uh, a sense of humor that I guess exists between the two of them, which is true to how couples act. It just doesn't always hit every time. I think that just kind of falls back on some of the writing, but I also think that they have some really strong moments together too. And like I said, their chemistry is strong. So overall, I, I enjoy them in this movie. I think they're one of the stronger aspects of it. I just think, God, the script gets really bad sometimes. <laughs> well, Craig, I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I, I, he's great in the first film. I feel like, yeah, this dialogue delivery is just very, it doesn't fit. It just, just doesn't fit. That was my problem with it. It's just, he's just, it's just bad. Carol Ann comes in and inter- interrupts them. And I, she's like, I'm not interrupting anything, am I? And she wants to be a ballerina. So Steven takes her to bed the next day at the mall. And I love this. Okay. I love that. This is so, I just, okay. So we just got a scene with Diane telling Steven how broke they were, but then we cut to a mall and she's on a big old shopping spree trip with the kids buying what I'm assuming are not necessities. She's just buying clothes and and shoes and stuff. I'm like, I thought you just said you were broke. She's, She's using that poor grandmother. She's milking her for every penny she has in that beautiful California home. Oh, well, they get it for free. They're lucky the grandmother did die. <laughs> she planned it. I'm, I'm convinced that Diane slipped something into her mother and she wanted to take that fucking house. She's like, we need a house. Oh, my God, because there is that dialogue when she tells Stephen, I think we deserve a house of our own again someday. Well, I'm going to kill my mother to get it. <laughs> the timing is too precise it's too specific but yeah and then this is the scene where we first get introduced to Kane because Carol Ann gets separated from Diane and Robbie when she when they're going from store to store because she looks behind her and she sees this Kane character played by uh 
Julian Beck walking through like people. And I found this to be an odd thing as well, but I'll get there. But like she gets separated. So she's lost. So Kane comes up to her and asks if she's lost. And this Kane character, if we can, if I can say anything about this film, it's this Kane character. Reverend Kane is one of the scariest motherfuckers period from any horror film. I mean, he naturally is just a horrifying looking man. The character at times makes me think of, um, of Herbert from Family Guy, you know, like, okay, then, well, then let me sing your song till your mother comes back. Like, <laughs> that, that kind of soft southern drawl this guy when he's talking to the little child. Like, it's just, it's very rapey. I understand, like, Diane comes back because obviously Carol Ann takes off the moment she sees this entity, you know, walk through a woman. Like, he's not discreet at all. That's what really throws me off about this movie. Right away, he's walking through people. He looks like a, a human skeleton. Like, no, I'm sorry, but it's clear this man is dying. I'm not surprised he passed soon after this. Um, he looks just absolutely emaciated. He is terrifying to look at, but he is not at all subtle in his approach. It's almost like an it follows kind of scenario. Okay, so here's my question. Are Is the family... Like the only people that can see him? I think it has to be the case. Because he's just walking through people willy-nilly at the mall and nobody seems to notice. But then Diane can see him. Steven can see him. Robbie can see him. Uh, Taylor can see him. Oh, so is he only visible to certain people? Because I would think an old skeletal-looking man walking through people at the mall would be very noticeable. Yes. yes. I, I think people would be aware, especially that wide-brimmed hat that he wears. It's a very specific fashion choice. But it works for the character. But I think you're right. I think you're right, Troy. But he does serenade Carol Ann with that damn song. God is in his holy temple. temple. <laughs> which they u- utilize actually that quite effectively for the score later on, which I will say is one of the standouts of the film. But yeah, Diane rushes back and she thanks Kane for uh, watching Carol Ann because she finally notices Carol Ann's missing. And, you know, Kane's like, oh, Thank you. She's such a lovely child. And he walks away and she walks. She Caroline watches and walk through another goddamn person. And she goes, mommy, I want to go home. See, this is a moment where a Diane, I'm sorry. If I was looking for my child and I found my child being serenaded by that man, I wouldn't say thank you for watching my child. I would say, get your hands off of my child. You're, you're horrifying <laughs> man. Why are you singing the gospel to my child? Like, keep away from her. And so that's a bad parenting choice. But it's also the 80s. I mean, children were swept away so easily back then. So I have to give her a little bit of, like, benefit of the doubt. But without pause or hesitation, this is the first thing we're seeing, really, of anything uh, to do with the family interacting with anything, like, otherworldly, you know? Right away, we're seeing... Dude walking through people uh, again. I, I kind of hit on this. I hit on this earlier, but there's no subtlety to the, the approach at all of introducing this malevolent force. Like as soon as you see this guy, the first thing you see is that he is like invisible to people, and it just feels so like 
It's like such an aggressive choice so early on in the movie. There's yeah, there's no suspense in this film in terms of the build up to what is taking place. But I want to say, you want to know a, a, a true crime connection? Since we mentioned true crime earlier in the episode, I'm going to make another true crime connection that I thought about when I was watching it this time. So Joe Beth Williams plays Diane Freeling, right? They're in a mall. She loses track of Carol Ann. Okay, here's the connection. Prior, like the year after Poltergeist, Joe Beth Williams starred in a made made for TV movie called The Adam Walsh Story, where she played Rave Walsh, who was the mother of Adam Walsh. We all know Adam Walsh. John Walsh was his father who ended up hosting America's Most Wanted. Adam Walsh was kidnapped from a mall when it, shopping with his mother because she lost track of him for a few seconds and he, they found his decapitated head. So there's, there's a kid because I was like thinking, okay, Joe Beth Williams played Rave Walsh, who lost her child in a mall. I know, weird, weird connection, but you know, that's that's how my brain works. I mean, I knew that coming into this episode, I was like, if there's one thing we're going to touch on in some of this fucking true crime, because listeners, I'm sure you're all aware that Troy is a fan of true crime, and my best friend, Teresa Padone, is also we, a fan I, of I know. true crime. I know. I was on her podcast. We discussed the John Benet Ramsey case. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> And so whatever any of these things come up, anything I know about anything true crime I know from her, and this is something we have specifically talked about before, I knew the entire uh, the entire story of all of the mystery and intrigue and sadness and death that occurred and murder that occurred around the Poltergeist universe, thanks to her. So I was really excited about to talk about that aspect with you, to be oh, honest. Oh, yeah. It's it's fascinating. It really is. If, and if you want to know more about it, I would definitely check out the Cursed Films segment on the Poltergeist franchise, which was on Shudder. But they get back from the mall. The grandmother is trying to talk to Diane about Carol Ann being gifted. Diane doesn't want to hear it. And grandma says, you have nothing to be scared of. And Diane's response is, how would you know what we should be scared of? You weren't there. Diane's kind of a bitch to her mother. That's another motivation for why I think she killed the woman. <laughs> she, I, you know what? Now that you say it, I'm, I, I think because they, yeah, they don't even throw a funeral for her or anything. Bury her in the backyard. Kind of bury the <laughs> they bury her in that <laughs> damn rose garden. Because, you know, okay, so I'm sorry. Would not you have, would not there be a mention of a funeral for this woman? I think she poisoned her. They buried her in the Rose Garden. They got her house. They're fine. But yeah, so the mother is like, then tell me what happened. And Diane tries to, she's like, well, first the canary died. And then the chairs went funny. And I thought it was kind of cool. But then Carol Ann disappeared. And then she can't go anymore. She's like, I can't tell you anymore. And she's like, I don't want, I just wanted to be normal. Let's just. So she goes up to bed and the grandmother, bless her heart, calls up the series. She's like, I'll be here if you need me. One of my biggest issues with the character development over the course of this film is the the main issue standing in the path of, of anyone's successes in this, in this film are themselves. Both Stephen and Diane have people around them that want to help them, you know? You've got this case of the grandmother who's clearly in a position where she's trying to get her daughter to open up to her. She's very tapped into her, you know, clairvoyant abilities. It's clear between their dialogue that they're both aware of this. And now, Joe Beth Williams just went through the events of the first poltergeist and is clearly aware that there is something more. There is some other force. There is some other, you know, poltergeist entity world out there. Uh, there's just like there's just more to it than just like what meets the eye. Why is she so resistant to opening her mind up to the potential of having these abilities? Because it becomes clear that you know throughout the female bloodline in this family, 
they're they're clairvoyants. They have the ability to speak with the dead and communicate with this other world. Which I could have done without this whole plot here, this whole subplot of them, the whole family being clairvoyants. Now, that's what made the first film so, I think, terrifying is there was no real backstory as to why Carol Ann was being targeted or why the family was being targeted. We had to had, kind of had to make the inferences and fill in the little details ourselves. But here it is so heavy fucking handed. Yes, that's the thing is the first film, obviously, she was special, but they like they, they left it somewhat vague. You know, they just made it clear that she made connection and that now she was desired by this force on the other side. Now they're giving it this whole like multi-layered explanation as to the who, what's and why's. And at times it's intriguing. There are aspects of it that are interesting, but overall it's just way too much talking. The storyline is so convoluted that they spend so much time in this movie explaining everything that they have to do and what they're about to do. Because overall, like on uh, when you present it, it just it's very uh, over the top and confusing. You and, and it's far fetched, and they're having to just kind of explain all of their reasoning to the audience for it to really make sense. You notice that this movie does a lot of self explanation. Mm-hmm. Oh, a lot, a lot. That night, Carol Ann wakes up and she goes into her grandma's bedroom to give her a kiss. Now, do you think this grandma was dead at this moment or? Oh, yes, absolutely. This was the this. I think she woke up when the grandmother died. She sensed it. And that's what got her to go walk in the next room. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because, yeah, she goes and gives the grandmother a kiss and then goes back into her room. And that's when her toy phone rings. Now, this toy phone takes the place of the television. Right. The television in the first film was kind of the 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 tool that the spirits use to communicate in this film. It's this little pink toy telephone. So she picks up her telephone and all you hear is like, yes, I'll be good. Well, yeah. Good night, grandma. So I think you're right. I think her. Yeah. She woke up the moment the grandma died. The grandma's spirit calls her to tell her, you know, to be good. And that's that. The next morning, the kids come into the kitchen to see Diane embracing Stephen. And Robbie's like, what's the matter? Diane's reply is, Grandma passed away last night. Grandma's dead. And they hug. And then that's the last fucking you ever hear Grandma again. She's out in the Rose Garden. Yeah. I do like the incorporation of the pink telephone. I think that, you know, of course... Knowing the successes of the first movie, there's going to be certain things they're going to feel like they have to kind of like recreate or mirror or live up to. And this definitely is, you're right, their version of the television. It's 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 serving kind of that similar purpose. And I think it's rather effective. And there's another scene coming up with it here soon that I think is also pretty effective. It's just not as effective as the TV. So I think it will forever live in its shadow, but it's still very creepy. I feel. Yeah. Well, Diane goes out in the Rose garden and she has a vision or a memory of her and her mom planting roses when she's a little girl. Okay. The melodrama. So many of these scenes coming up here get really dramatic. Well, yeah, this little girl right here, right here. Absolutely. Right here. This is where I want it. Where she's telling her mother, she wants the rose. It's very like, 
TV movie ish. Joe Beth Williams is weep beautifully weeping as rose petals blow all around her, her hair billowing and orchestral swelling up around her. She's like, Oh mother, I know you've always taken care of me. Or whatever she says, you know, like some nonsense. Like sure didn't seem like you liked your mom night ago when she died, you know, before you <laughs> five pounds of horse tranquilizers in her drink. Uh, but, uh, but no, yeah, I mean honestly it it seems very forced because we had so little with the grandmother. This moment feels so like so over the top because they decide to go really big with it, and it just doesn't feel warranted. You, could, you know what? You are right. She could have slipped the grandmother something because remember, right before when they're having the conversation in the kitchen, they get in that little spot spat. She hands her a coffee cup. <laughs> oh my God, Joe Beth Williams killed that woman. I'm standing <laughs> by it. I know for a fact that we're onto something, and this oh, is why this are. family is haunted. They needed this house. She's just never come clean about it. And this is, again, this scene, I, I get what they're doing, but this next scene seems so just out of place. It's Diane's dream sequence when she goes out in the garden and then immediately hears her name being called and then is pulled into the ground by zombies. It's so fucking out of place, man. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's like it's out of their turn of the living dead. Again, throwing everything at the wall and hoping these things stick. And this is not a moment that sticks. And it, it's such an abrupt transition to this dream moment. And it's weird because there's this pretty cool effect that they do of the clouds forming over the house. And if they just would have like removed this dream sequence and let it like just been the sequence of what's about to happen with the downpour, which I think is an actually a rather cool scene. This dream sequence serves zero purpose. I understand that it's starting to express again. Diane clearly has the same fucking ability. She's starting to put together what's happened, what's buried beneath the house. It's symbolic of something, but it's too abstract. It's too quick. It feels forced. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's out of place for this film. But I do, yes, the clouds roll over the house and it's like the only house on the block you see that has this like large cloud over it and it starts to rain. And I do like this moment like when the, it's raining really hard and there's like dripping from the ceiling in, in Carol Ann's bedroom and the raindrops start hitting the little to- pink toy phone and it makes the little chime. It's like ding, ding. This is such a strangely like well-executed scene amidst all of this. Until the phone actually starts ringing. Um, so Carol Ann goes to get it and thinks it's her grandmother at first. And the, the person's like, no, I'm not. You, uh, we don't know what the thing on the other line is saying. You just hear Carol Ann. She's like, oh no, it's not my grandma. Who is it then? No, I don't remember. And then like the robot, little toy robot comes on and it like starts walking towards her. And it's like, hello, little one. We want the angel. And then you get that chanting score that kicks in that I really like. The God is in his hope. And everything starts going batshit. Like the the little robot shoots the phone out of her hand. Spirits fly out of it. The house starts to shake. Waking up Diane and Stephen, who have to like get up, and everything's shaking. They they have to bust into uh, Carol Ann's bedroom, and it's very reminiscent of the first film, right? And when they pull the sheet off the bed, it's Carol Ann. She's there. She has not been taken. And she says, they're back. Nowhere near as effective as the initial delivery of they're here. I feel that this whole sequence here, again, really interesting misbalance of really cool moments with really kind of sloppy ones. You've got like this really great shot of the craning of the, uh, over the bed, over, you go over top Robbie and it comes past the phone and it lands on 
Carol Ann as she wakes up. You have this really kind of creepy moment of her on the phone, which I really like that. Um, the whole initial moment with the robots really cool. And then uh, the house itself, like kind of just everything happens all at once. Like the shit hits the fan and it is really intense and it's really just full of panic. You know, the, the parents wake up and they instantly realize they have to like run to their kids. But like this kind of sets off this moment in motion now within the film where like they're like, oh, okay, and we're possessed again. Like now we got to be on the run. Like it makes it so like now the pacing here is like misevenly proportioned that they are now in like panic mode moving forward this early on in the film for the rest of the movie. Like we've been talking about, there's no buildup in this movie. I feel like from this point moving forward, it's like high stakes, <laughs> like a fight for survival. It is. And like anything can happen at any moment, like anywhere they go, they're not safe. There's something that's going to happen to them as we, as we learn, you know, of course they get Carol Ann, they get the kids, they, they run out of the house, but when they open the door, the front door, Taylor's there just shows up just right at the right time. Right. Oh my God. It's so weird. Like the way Stephen like opens the door and Taylor's like just staying there completely still. And Stephen's like, ah, and like cuts back and forth, like, like five or six times. It's a very strange edit. Yeah, and he says, who the hell are you? Tangina sent me. And Steven's response is, great, tell the magic munchkin we said hi. I'm like, okay, how? why the hostility towards Tangina when she saved your fucking family in the first film? It comes out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And again, my biggest issue with both Steven and with Diane is like, you have people who have helped you. You have people who from the last film are the reason you made it through some of these ev- these events. Uh, the hostility that they have towards Tangina at first and towards this character who clearly, he's clearly like onto something and aware of the fact of what they went through. He knows Tangina. Like they should be open arms embracing anybody that's willing to help him. Here's the thing, Roger, is I'm just going to say, Stephen is low-key racist. <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, some of his dialogue coming up here is. Yes. And then Diane is not much better, to be honest with you. I don't know if you caught some of the shit that she said. I'm like, whoo, okay. I mean, and again, this is stuff that wouldn't even have registered with me when I was a kid, right? But watching it now, and again, I'm still, it's it's a little jarring, to be honest with you, but, but my. But again, you you hit something, you hit a nail on the head that I recognized right away is like, why the hostility towards these people that helped you? Like Tangina saved your fucking family. So why are you making a very derogatory comment about her? And then why are you just so fucking hostile towards this gentleman that is, was sent to help you? Like, why, what? I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. It makes zero sense because Tangina's helped them in the first film. Yes. You know, she said this house is clean a little prematurely, but still, uh, you know, it, he wouldn't have ever gotten Carol Ann or his wife back if it wasn't for for her. So I don't understand, like, why he would automatically be so hostile towards something that she sent to help when you just realize, based on your house shaking and fucking spirits flying out of toy telephones, that shit is hitting the wall, hitting, hitting the fan again. But he just totally, like, storms past Taylor, leaves him there. And they go and end up staying, or they end up going to a roadside diner where inside they're having, you know, they're just discussing it. What are they going to do? You know, we don't have anywhere to go. Diane's like, I don't know where we're going to go. Carol Ann makes, oh, maybe we could go to Disneyland. Carol Ann, this is another problem I had. 
Carol Ann is not a stupid child. I don't buy that she would say that. Like they try to make her, like that's something like a little like two-year-old would say, right? Carol Ann has been always throughout the whole franchise, first and second film, has been very mature for her age. She knows exactly what's going on. She knows, so why would they make her say, oh, we can go to, we can move to Disneyland. And when, when Roddy says, when, um, when Robbie says you're such an infant, she's like, okay, how about Dunkin' Donuts? I'm like, why are you making this little girl who has been wise beyond her years sound like a little fucking idiot all of a sudden? Yeah. It feels like the writing on the, on this film is just so drastically different from the first film. And it, it feels like, and I, again, I don't know a lot about this movie, so I know it's not obviously the same director, in the sense of the writers, you know, I'm I'm just curious of, of how much connection they had with the original film. Is it it's not the same writers, is it? Mm, no, it's not the same writers. I feel yeah, no, I feel like Steven Spielberg, Toby Hooper would have made sure this script had a few more <laughs> run throughs before it went into production. Right, absolutely, and their touch is absolutely what's missing here. Blatantly, that polish. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's such a downgrade in storytelling both from an articulate and uh, just well uh, crafted script to a proper cinematic eye that knows when to use things when to incorporate big moments when to apply them and when to like have show some restraint this movie does not understand the idea of restraint at all. Well, what this scene, what this scene does give us, Roger, are these two broads that I could just imagine is going to be me and you in the future, where you're where you're calling me out of bed in my curlers because you're having man trouble. <laughs> oh, it's me! It's me and you! It's me and you in like five. And I'm years. like, what? Are you, not even far why away. Why are you even with that guy? And she's like, yeah. So you get these two broads sitting at the at the cafe counter, and the ones like. Why'd you quit me out of bed at four in the morning for this guy? Because I like him. That's going to be you. Uh, that'll be me. You know me so well. I'll be no nonsense. I'll be getting up and I'm, I'll be like, don't you be bringing it to my house. And I'll also be the one that gets possessed by an elderly woman's spirit and begins to ramble <laughs> to strangers about it for a split second. This comes out of nowhere either. So one of the broads with the curlers gets up and she turns around as she notices the family, Diane, sitting there. And she drops her coffee mug. And then she goes in and leans in real close and, yeah, starts talking in the mother's voice to Diane. And Diane's like, oh, my God, mother. Like She's just like, it's so weird because without hesitation, Diane is instantly, it seems, I mean, seemingly convinced. You can't run, child. Be brave. And I'm sorry. Uh, real quick, Troy. Are you supposed to tell me that that this grandmother can just possess somebody uh, just at the drop of a hat? Like, you know, again, the original film, there was a certain buildup to the fear factor, and at the end, you kind of saw the big grand reveal. Here, it seems like, you know, people are getting possessed, ghosts are walking through people. So yeah, so Diane's like, mama, and the lady comes to her, and she's like, I ain't your mother, lady. So they leave the restaurant. Taylor has followed them and is waiting, and this is when, like, Stephen's, like, very hostile towards them. He's like, we just want to be left alone. Get off my car. But then you have that moment with Taylor and a sweet cherub, Carol Ann, where they're sitting there like laughing to each other, looking so cute. He One thing I like about him is even though he is a stereotype, he's super warm and he's always the one that seems to have his shit together. Like at least he's like, he seems to be the capable one out of everybody. 
Um, and this whole little moment here that he has with her, it seems like he is so protective of her. You see that a few times from his character, even though I think his character is a little absurd, a bit over the top, um, a, a pinch unrealistic in its portrayal because it just doesn't feel completely authentic. It does feel like it's very forced, but the actor himself is quite great and he's at least playing him with heart. Um, and I do appreciate his presence in the film. Well, I think that his interaction with Carol Ann is what causes Diane and Steven to, to maybe trust him a little bit more and that because they bring him back to their home and as they approach, you know, Steven's like the house is okay. And Taylor's like, yes, it's okay. And then there's this weird thing where he tells Steven that the car is angry and that he'll fix it. Is the car like literally possessed by a spirit? Is this, what... I don't know. And it's like a running gag through the movie. It's like the last thing in the movie. It's the last joke. Yeah, which is weird, which is weird. But inside the house, Diane does call Tangina, apparently, to see if Taylor's okay. And she tells Steven, yeah, Tangina says he's he's good. And then they watch him outside. And this is when Steven is, like, they're watching him, like, sit outside and do, like, this, I don't know what it is, like, meditating. Um, and all these, like, butterflies and moths start to surround him. But this is when Steven, like, goes on this rant about, I don't have, I don't have any, nothing against these people. And he's like, what if he's escapee from the tribal mental, mental ward? I'm like, oh, God, cringe. The, this whole bit he has here really makes Steven come off a pinch unlikable. Because it's kind of just, like, one thing after another after another. He's like, oh, you know, uh... Uh, I'm 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 apparently a 16th engine, though my mother would never admit it. Like you know, make it sound like it's like really awful. Like he keeps kind of digging it in. Um, so yeah, it leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. But then it's followed up by that moment where you have goddamn Taylor just sitting on that patio with surrounded by butterflies. It's magical. They're all just floating around him. It's a really weird moment. It doesn't feel like it's at all um, fitting in this movie. But then he's just surrounded by these butterflies. It's so odd. It's so odd. It's yeah. It's 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 almost like a Mary Poppins. Yeah. Like, am I watching fucking Mary Poppins oh. or am I watching Poltergeist? But then then you get a scene following this. If we thought what Steven said wasn't bad enough, we get a scene where Diane takes Robbie and Taylor some sandwiches, and she sees Taylor is giving Robbie some war pain and stuff because Robbie wants to be a man. Diane immediately gets pissed, and she sends Robbie into the house, and she tells. Taylor, well, there's better ways to be a man than putting on war paint and claws. And Taylor's response is, how would you know you're not a man? And Diane's like, well, you're not a mother. And then she says this comment that I don't know. It came off as <laughs> very offensive to me. She's like, well, what do you expect me to do? Part of my job is to make sure my kids are part of a normal world, she says, which I ass I was assuming was a dig at him for like, because he's like trying to make Robbie part of like the native American world by giving him war pain and stuff. And she's like, Oh, they need to be part of the normal world. I really hope that it was her more saying like, you know, after what happened at the house, that things can be normal for them. That's how, what I'm hoping, you know, being like, okay, like, you know, you're not going to be haunted by demons forever, but it does read a bit that way. The reason I feel like it reads more of the, she was making a dig is because how upset she got when she saw Robbie was in this pain and stuff. Like what was the, how is that hurting anything? It's like, oh no, you better not do that. That's not normal. I want him to be normal. Very weird. 
And I think the fact that they play it with such, like, again, an era of melodrama. Every conversation that takes place between characters in this movie is, like, a big moment. And, like, so when people are arguing, it's, like, it's just impassioned and filled with intensity. And this moment right here, she's just all worked up. Her hair is all big and curly and puffy with rage. And she's, you know, kind of going off on him. But then they kind of come to this moment. And at its core, like, the message behind the moment I don't hate, you know, he basically tells her, he's like, he needs to realize that sometimes like you need to like not shelter your children. Like you need to actually let them experience things because they're capable of getting through things. You need to support them through it. Uh, it ends on kind of like a strong note, but it just played weird. It does. Yeah, it does. And, but he, it, he, it's, it's the Taylor character that I think comes off as the most likable, sensible character of this entire film, which is, yeah. Because he tells her ch- children have fought wars. Children have, they have courage. You can't treat them like they're any less just because they're younger. And, you know, she has this realization, this moment of realization. You're right. Very melodramatic. And then there's this, then you get Steven pulling up in his car smoking really bad. And he comes out and he's screaming at Taylor to keep his hands off my car. And Taylor's like, oh, it's still mad. Steven's like, that car is pissed. I don't know what the fuck this joke is supposed to be, but it's not funny. I feel like they're trying to imply that, like, you know, obviously the car was part of the property that was possessed. And so it also has, like, an angry spirit in it. And so whatever. Because earlier. It's so stupid. But earlier when you had that whole moment where Taylor was like, I'll take care of it. I think he just, like, riled the spirit up. But, like, it it really gets lost in translation. It is a sloppy aspect of the story. I would agree. And now we get perhaps the most famous scene from the film. I think this is definitely the most memorable scene from Poltergeist 2. And it is when Kane, Reverend Kane, strolling down the street singing his God is in... His holy temple. It starts to rain just on him in the house. Carol Ann's sitting outside, out front in the yard watching, and she is transfixed by him. Robbie comes out to get her inside, and she won't come, so he has to get uh, Diane. So Diane runs out, and she's like, come on, Carol Ann, you're getting soaked. And this is the moment when the reverend just strolls up to the house and begins talking to the family. And right away, like, Ebuzz is even like, fuck this because the Reverend tries to pet him and he like whimpers and scurries away. Carol Ann is very uneasy. In fact, she says that she's starting to feel sick. So Diane takes Carol Ann and Robbie inside. And the Reverend is like, I'm glad we have a chance to talk alone away from your family because I'm worried. And Steven's like, well, what are you worried about? He's like, because I hear you have an an Indian living here. I'm like, just very, just, aggressively calling out the Native American gentleman that's staying in the house, just throwing it out there and make it sound like this is, it's this really horrible thing. So he's standing in that rainstorm, I, the downpour that always follow, follows him around. That's a really cool little trait about this character. I've got to say, like when you think about the storyline about who he is and, and what uh, his backstory is and the whole idea of, of what we learn about him, the fact that everywhere he goes, there's kind of this downpour, this kind of perpetual cloud that follows him. Really cool little trait. The fact that he's just standing there in the middle of this massive rainstorm, though, soaking to the bone through that heavy fucking suit that he wears. Looking like a skull, looking like a talking skull. I mean, he's terrifying looking. He tells... He tells Stephen that Taylor's dangerous. And then inside, all of a sudden, Diane gets this premonition, which is like Kane 
leading his people inside this cave. And then we cut back to Cain, tell Stephen that he's, that Stephen, you, you're worried that you're not man enough to keep your family together. Stephen's like, how do you know that? Because I'm smart, he says. So let me in and let's talk about it. And then we get the whole, let me in. And it just gets more aggressive and more aggressive before he's like, let me in. And then he screams, you're all going to die in there. You're going to die. This whole scene gets really creepy. Um, I think everyone's kind of in their best form right now. Like Steven, like the, when he's like just sweating, I mean, like his eyes are dilated. And and Kane, when you look at him through that storm door, like that just gaunt, ha- like haggard face, those teeth, he really is super effective in this role. This is probably his strongest moment, I would say, right here for sure. Yeah, the the the, the way he's able to like shift between like that creepy smile but then having that very malevolent evil just look of hatred stretched across his face and then in a snap instant he could smile because like when steven tells him get the hell out of here his face immediately contorts from like that evil to just like this oh okay and well i'm sorry i'm sorry to have bothered you his intensity is really delicately played and this is one of several moments in the movie where in the midst of all this this kind of unfolding ongoing chaos like i said earlier like it's kind of like one thing after another even when it's dialogue moments they're so big and impassioned you know they're just always really like riled up everything is always high stakes but this moment here and there's a few more moments to follow soon take their time it's allowed to be creepy it's allowed to uh pace out it's a bit slower uh, this whole moment through this, the storm door, like when he's speaking, he's having these intentional pauses. And it really like lets the moment just be something um, that feels a bit more in line with the original film for a second. You know, that overall tone, the approach to it. Um, I like some of these slower moments that they give us. We don't get a lot of them. But this really, I would agree, is the standout moment in the movie because it's not going so over the top it's just creepy because he's creepy it's scary because of what he's saying of how he's acting and nothing more it doesn't rely on really crazy over the top effects or absurd storyline shifts you just got this creepy ass fucking guy delivering some creepy ass fucking dialogue and the individual he's talking to is really selling it and it makes the scene really work really well it's a terrifying scene even today watching it i'm like geez this is creepy Creepy, creepy, creepy. Definitely one of the creepiest villains to come out of the era, I think, for sure. I mean, it's like I said, it most memorable part of the movie by far. Uh, so Kane strolls back down the driveways, the rain clouds following him. Uh, Taylor comes out and tells Stephen he did good because that was a test of his power. And then it cuts to night and Stephen goes outside to join Taylor and he has his bottle of tequila with him. Taylor, they have this conversation and I'm just like, I don't care about any of this. Taylor's like, you feel like you're a leaf at the mercy of the wind, right? Every day since you've been born, someone has been doing something to you against your will. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Again, it's the movie over-explaining things, over-explaining intentions, motivations. It, it just talks a lot. You need to stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's what he tells Steven. 
And so they, and I don't know, it doesn't really go anywhere because then we cut to upstairs. Robbie's supposed to be cleaning his braces and Carol Ann comes in to tell him, you need to come down, hurry up. You're supposed to clean your braces and come downstairs. He's like, okay. She's like, don't okay me. And then as you know, he turns to watch her leave. We get these zombies in the mirror. Cool little shot. I got to say, like, sometimes the zombies hit in this. Sometimes they don't. But this moment when he turns around, he's completely aloof to it. And you see them come in from out of focus. I like that moment. Yeah. So Carol Ann goes back downstairs and Robbie gets his razor and, and gets the razor and shave cream out. Like he's going to shave. And, you know, he's like, what, 10? I don't know. But I guess it's showing he wants to be a man, right? Because that was his whole thing with with Taylor earlier and getting the war paint on. He wants to be a man. He wants to help his family. But he's immediately startled by Carol Ann again. And he goes, don't do that. She's like, I didn't do anything. So she goes back downstairs again and gives Stephen the little phone to pretend that he gets a phone call. He's like, Daddy, you got a phone call. And he's like, oh, maybe it's a bill collector. And once he actually picks up the phone, the door upstairs, Stairs, the bathroom door slams shut and Robbie's trapped inside. And then we get the, I, I would say this is probably another standout scene from the film as absurd as it is. Robbie is basically attacked by his braces. Like the metal from his braces start to come out of his teeth and wrap around him. This is an example in the film where they, they try to go bigger and they succeed. I would say, because as absurd as this moment is, you're right they pull it off. Like the first shot you see where the braces are coming out from his mouth is pretty fucking cool. Like I would have been cool if it was just that. But then when you have, of course the parents come running upstairs, they open the door and then you see him like full on, like almost like spider webbed to this, to the, the upper corner of the ceiling. And it's clear they're wanting to have another big grand moment, similar to some of those finale moments of the original film. They're trying to kind of recreate some of those vibes with some of these sequences. And I'll say that this is one of the scenes that I would say comes closest to it. The shot of his eye looking through all the metal. Um, the fact that he is not like horribly injured by this is, is shocking to me because they do end up managing to overcome this thing. And he drops from the ceiling, but this whole moment here is really well shot. The effect looks really cool. All of the metal strands of metal, like the webbing around him. It looks, um, it looks really it's painful, honestly. Like, I can't imagine how painful that is if it's coming from your fucking mouth. Holy shit, how is your mouth producing that much metal? I think this is one of the scenes that made me fascinated with the film when I was a kid, to be honest with you, because we can all, as kids, I think, relate to braces. I never had braces, but most a lot of my friends did. So it was like, oh my God, look at how crazy this is. So as a kid watching this, I mean, you were transfixed, I think. It was just an amazing scene, and I do agree with you. Yeah, I think it's one of the standout scenes as well. But the whole the whole thing looks great, and when when Diane and, and Stephen get up there and they're trying to they're breaking in, and they, the the metal is going towards the electrical outlet, and they're trying to pull it away, and like spark it's sparking as it gets closer, and they're screaming for Taylor. Taylor's downstairs with uh, Carol Ann. He won't come upstairs, but they are able to break Robbie free. Steven goes downstairs and yells at Taylor. Why the fuck didn't you come upstairs? My son almost died. And Taylor's like, it's Carol Annie's after not you, not Robbie, not Diane. And this is the dramatic moment when Steven's like, why the hell won't you leave us alone? And sits in his chair and immediately is like thrown across the room. Uh, no subtlety to this movie fucking at all. Like chairs are able to rocket people 
uh, with bursts of light. You have so many moments where it's just like a flash of light and people get thrown across a room without rhyme or reason. When things happened in the original movie, it seemed like it was like being channeled through something or, or stemming from something. Here, it's just like kind of for the sake of it, like without explanation. And so, yeah, he's like launched from the chair. It's this really kind of unexplained moment that happens. I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's... It's a weird choice. A few weird choices. But I do like the whole braces sequence. That is really well handled. Everything that kind of leads up to like the pipes bursting in the bathroom and everything. Um, and I do like that you do learn that Taylor's main goal here is really ensuring that Carol Ann is safe. It does make it clear that this man is in tune with this and aware of this. And because the family is upset with him at first. He's like, fuck you. He's like, listen. You guys can figure out how to work together. You're a family unit. This girl is the focus. I will be watching her. Um, I, I like that aspect of who he is. It makes him seem like a real stand-up guy. Yeah, well, there we get that scene where after Steven's thrown from the chair, we do see like it's supposed to be like Kane's spirit get up out of the chair, and he's like, you can't keep her. I'm not dead. It's in this like very like robotic sounding voice. Some of these effects they do with like the the mist and the the you know the humanoid kind of forms made out of smoke. Sometimes they look good. This moment looks all right. Later on the film, you got plenty of these things coming up. They look like shit. Um, they do a lot of like smoke play and mist play and fog effects. And it, I just think this is a time in the eighties when those things still look very hokey. And so sometimes that is a big, big issue with the movie. We're getting to hokey effects. The whole finale of this film is a hokey effect. And we are moving right towards it. That, yeah, that night when they're sleeping, they're trying to sleep. And Taylor's doing some little like protective thing with his medicine bag around the family. And they wake up because it starts to get really windy. And there's more heavy handed dialogue. Like, there's literally this whole conversation about like Taylor's like, he's still here. His presence is still here. Diane's like, well, who is he? And he, and Taylor says, I don't know, but he feels like Carol Ann belongs to him. He's a man filled with a demon lost in a mansion that surrounds our world. He doesn't know he's dead because he isn't. Nothing really dies. And he chooses not to see the light. So we have to learn to defeat it. And I'm like, Oh my God, can we stop? <laughs> Some of the, Things being expressed in the story, though, are, are cool. And that's what really blows is like there's so many like big like speeches and, you know, you've always got Taylor given like these like bits of wisdom. But what they're what they're disclosing here about the reverend, about the idea that he is this evil man, the fact that he's like such a force of evil that he's kind of like stuck in this universe and how that ties to what happened in the initial film is interesting, but it's just not told well. But Roger, I can gather that myself. I don't need it spoon fed to me. That's what I'm saying is the story is intriguing, but I don't need to hear them tell me it. <laughs> exactly. I feel like that enough has been portrayed with this character already. I, I can make this inference. Okay, this is a spirit. He's evil. He's after Carol Ann. I got it. I got it. That's that's what I need to know. I don't need it to be heavy-handedly force-fed to me with this film. Heavy-handed. I mean, that's that should be the that should be the sideline for this movie. It's Poltergeist two. Heavy-handed, not the other side. Heavy fucking handed. This whole movie is heavy-handed. <laughs> Yeah, well, we get uh, Taylor and Steven making a trip to the desert. 
leaving Diane at home when she gets a knock at the door. And, and I do like this little moment because she looks out the peephole and we don't see anybody. And immediately the knock happens again. So she cautiously opens the door and looks and it's fucking little Tangina. She's like, hi, Diane. Hi, Diane. When they play it up, it's like a moment of suspense. And I love that. Only to reveal it's goddamn Tangina. So, so tiny. But she adds an energy to the film that it's been lacking thus far. She is a breath of fresh air when she comes back on camera. Uh, this little moment with her that she shares with Diane. I'd rather hear her, her give me any exposition over anybody else in this movie. Uh, at least she does it. She, I mean, she's talk about heavy handed. Like this is a big performance. Let's be real. At the end of the day, Tangina is not a character who is in any way um, subtle, like subtle or yeah. I mean, like she is a quite an over the top depiction of a, of, of a medium, but she's done it's done so very lovingly um, and it has a lot of personality to it and it still feels authentic. Strangely. I just think because it's who she is, it's how the character translates. Uh, So I think bringing her back into the story was really needed because everybody else has felt very, just like kind of lackluster up to this point. And she just kind of gives it a little spark of flair that's been missing. It's just unfortunate that she comes and she goes and then she comes and then she goes very underutilized. I mean, they 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 really put Tangina to the sideline for the Taylor character in this film, and I don't know how I feel about that decision because you're right. Tangina was such a pivotal part of the first film, and bringing her back for this one is certainly smart. But then you underutilize her and give us this Taylor character. Who I'm, I'm not saying I like the Taylor character, huge, very well intentioned character, but. This is poltergeist. Like Tangina is synonymous with poltergeist. I would have much rather her be the focal character coming back to try to help the family. But she's there to show Diane some pics from under her swimming pool. And she needs Diane to tell her what she feels because she realizes that these dead bodies were from a religious organization that disappeared near Cuesta Verde. They were believed to be massacred by Indians, but. That's not really what happened. Uh, and then we cut to the desert and T- Taylor begins a chant in front of the fire with Stephen and these spirits come out of the flames and one lurches aggressively at Stephen and Taylor tells him that entity has revealed itself to you. It's your enemy. And then Taylor proceeds to blow smoke into Stephen's nose. It's a cool effect. It is. And he's like, I need to make you one with knowledge and power. And then we go back to Tangina, who has Diane hold these photos. And the first photo she gives her is of Reverend Kane. And she's like, tell me what you feel. And Diane's like, I've seen him. And Tangina's like, where? At at the mall at our house. And she's like freaking out. And Tangina's like, you need to tell me what you know, because you you know more than anyone, because you travel due to a mention few people have been to. Now tell me what you feel. I mean, she's. She's coming on aggressive. Tangina is not someone you fuck around with. And I, I, you know, at least she's getting straight to the point. She's really making it clear to Diane, like, listen, you got the same fucking power that you, your daughter has, that your mother had. You've got it too, and you fucking know it. Just embrace it, because right now we need it. And, and so it does at least get that part of the story kind of moving along, because you're right. That is something that feels kind of shoehorned in, that now she has the same kind of ability. I am happy it brings Tangina back in for a moment. What I really don't feel like I need 
is this whole like soul searching moment going on with Steven because it's just like one more distraction. It pulls him away from the family. Like after everything that's been happening, like wouldn't you be like, we're all sticking together. Nobody's going anywhere. We're going to figure out what the fuck we're going to do. I'm certainly not going to the middle of the goddamn desert to some smoke house sauna and sitting with this Native American gentleman and let him, let him blow smoke in my face. I mean, I've got other things I got to do than sit here shirtless, covered in sweat and dew. Well, I feel like this whole soul searching thing between Taylor and Steven that has been prominent throughout this film goes nowhere. There's no like resolution to it. Like it's this buildup that's that's that we're getting where Taylor keeps confronting Steven about, oh, you you need to face your fears. Somebody's been doing something to your whole life. But it really goes nowhere because the ending of the film doesn't really have anything to do with that. It doesn't play into it very much. So I feel like all of this build up for zero payoff. It's just like a waste of time, a waste of dialogue, a waste of time, a waste of scenes that I could give a shit less about. What we do have is Diane being able to now recount what happened with Cain and his people. And Cain's people followed him into the cavern because he predicted the end of the world was coming. But the date came and went, and he still wouldn't let them leave. And basically what ended up happening is they all starved to death in this cave. This is one of the most effective parts of the fucking film is these flashbacks of him with that goddamn call where they're like pulling the rock over the entrance. You have babies crying in people's arms, covered in dirt, and he's reaching for him, begging him to let them leave, and he's just making them all pray to him. It is it is creepy. He's terrifying. I would have loved to have seen more of that. Like, give me a... Give me a goddamn like mini series about this fucker and him luring this goddamn cult out and force him to go down to that cave. Give me that. Unfortunately, Roger, I would not want to see that because I don't think anybody can can, can top Julian Beck. They 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 had to cast a different actor to play him in part three. And you've seen part three, right? Yeah. It's not even the same. Like the cane in part three is like laughably not scary. So I'm like, ah, don't do it unless you're going to actually bring back the phenomenal, phenomenal Julian Beck, who just, again, creepy as hell. Rest in peace. Uh, but yeah, so Tangina is comforting Diane and tells her that it just makes sense now. When she brought Carol Ann back from the other world, his followers became restless because they got a taste of her life force. And she's like, he is the beast. And then we cut to Kane just casually walking outside the house. <laughs> I don't know where that comes into play because it's not like he comes up to the house and confronts them or anything, but he's out there. I guess he's always watching. He's always present. Taylor reveals to Stephen that he needs to take his family back to Cuesta Verde to confront Kane before Kane can get to them. Uh, and Because Taylor's like, I've done all I can do and I must be leaving now. And that night at dinner, the kids are depressed. Everyone's depressed that Taylor's gone. Robbie doesn't even want to eat dinner. He just goes on the sofa with his baseball bat, trying to protect the family. And then we get a scene with Steven drinking his tequila. He loves the tequila. And there is the worm in the bottle of tequila, which is a pretty normal thing. And we get this like zoom in of this worm in the bottle of tequila. And all of a sudden, it opens its eyes. Do worms have eyes? Like do worms? I, I, I thought this one. This one does. This one has a very human-like eye. It's very weird. I think it's supposed to be Cain. Well, is it supposed to resemble Cain? I, I mean, it is Cain as a worm, yes, because eventually, as we learn, it is it is fully Cain at one point. Uh, but yeah, strange 
choice the zoom in on the eye, but where it's going makes it worth it. So I'm not even going to bitch about it. I feel like the next 15 minutes of this film are great. Fire. The pacing, the effects. If it could have maintained this throughout the film, I would have been a happy, happy, happy camper. Uh, Upstairs, Diana's washing Carol Ann's hair while they talk about Alice in Wonderland. Carol Ann then says she knows why they're here. And Diana's like, why? And she's like, because they don't have nowhere else to go. It's so dramatic. Okay. And then I'm confused by this scene. We cut to, it's a really cool looking scene. We cut to the outside of the house and all these spirits are rising up from the ground, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like these red orbs start rising from the it's ground. Spirits. Fra- yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, and it starts taking the form of like these kind of humanoid shapes. Okay, explain to me this. Yeah. Who are these people? Because this is not their house. They're not in Quest of Air, they. This is their grandmother's house miles yeah, away. Yeah, I think I got the storyline. This is my thought, my theory. So, what when Tangina showed up earlier, she stated to Diane. That what 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 happened at the initial house when she, when Carol Ann crossed over it disrupted all of the spirits that were there buried underneath the house. So when they get disrupted, when they get awakened by her presence, they get a taste of her life force. She says that like they got a taste of her life force, and so I think that now knowing that she is a clairvoyant that they can feed off of her energy that she is able to connect with the other side and they can use her as a means to kind of i guess like kind of cross over they're seeking her out and so when she says that you know she knows why they're there because they have nowhere else to go they're being drawn to her circling back around to why uh Taylor's been trying to protect her this whole time is because they've they've sensed her presence They've sensed her abilities and they want to kind of feed off of it. And that's why they're seeking her out. Does that make sense? I guess that's too convoluted for my. That's what I'm saying. It's too much. There's way too much story going on here. I'm really reaching. I'm trying to piece it together for you to the best of my abilities. (laughs) Okay. I'll take that. I was just like wondering who are these spirits because they're not buried. They're not at their house. Like they're not at their original house. Are these just like random people that were buried in this yard? I don't know. I'll go with what she said. Whatever. So back in the house, Stephen actually drinks the last of the tequila, including the worm. And the minute he swallows the worm, he starts hacking and and, and like screaming and like gagging. And then all of a sudden he like gets this calm over his, over him. And he, and he malevolently looks up the stairs and he starts to sing. God is in his holy temple. God is in his holy temple. And he goes upstairs and into the bathroom where Carol Ann is brushing her doll's hair. And she immediately can kind of sense something because she's like, Daddy, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I just want to give my little girl a hug. And me and Mommy, we need to talk one-on-one. And then he like, uh, basically this whole next few minutes is him aggressively like manhandling Diane. And borderline raping the woman. Borderline raping her while he's screaming at her. Well, first of all, you know, he's trying to, he's like, man, comes up behind her and is like feeling her up. And she's like, Steven, not now. And he's like, why? I have needs. And she's like, well, it looks like your needs have been fulfilled by the bottle tonight. And then he's like, are you calling me a drunk? Yes. And she goes into the bath. Yeah. I mean, and she's like, Steven, I don't have time for this now. And he goes and she goes in the bathroom. He's like, remember the other day when you saw mommy out in the garden? 
she's like, how did you know that? And he begins to like launch in about how she thinks all of their problems are because of Carol Ann. And she wished Carol Ann had never been born. You never wanted Carol Ann, he screams as she's like, pokes her little doll's head around the corner. Crying. Yeah. Then he jumps on her and like aggressively pins her to the floor. And he's like, he's going to rape her. And she's screaming. She's like, what are you doing, Steven? What are you doing? Please, please. I love you. God damn it. Don't you know I love you? And I guess this is enough. Her saying, I love you, I guess, to snap him out of it because then he starts gagging. This whole scene, though, leading up to this point, he's so good in this moment. Like, his physicality actually changes. The look of his overall appearance almost looks like he takes on more of a reverend-esque physicality almost at certain points. Um, His body language, everything about him, he does a really great job. I mean, he's almost transfixing at certain points when he's licking on her hands and just the choices he's making. It's so just almost like... uh, I mean, it's, it's violent. I mean, it is violent. Like, he's pinning her to the ground. He's licking all over her hands. He's kissing on her neck. She's screaming. And she starts to realize that he's, you know, obviously not being himself. Yes, it's an abrupt transition to get him back to being him norm- his normal self, obviously. But that whole moment while he is possessed under the power of the Reverend, he does a great job with it. He really does. I wish there was more of those kinds of moments. That's what I was just going to say. It's great. It's really great. It's very unsettling. It's cool to see like Stephen Freeling, the, the, you know, this, this father that we've grown to really uh, like, because he, we know that he loves his family. We know he's, you know, d- will do what he can to protect them. We grew to like these two as a couple in the first film and it's only trans, you know, it's only transferred into this film that they still are this really strong entity. So it's really cool that they gave him this moment to like almost be a, to be villainous. And you're right. Craig T. Nelson knocks it out of the park. I wish it went on a little bit longer. I didn't buy the fact that she says, I love you twice to him is able to knock it out of him, but it does lead to then one of the most gross effects of the film. When he begins to puke out this fucking worm, I would say one of the most gross effects of the era, like this effect makes a lot of the flaws leading up to it worth it, in my opinion, because it is so fucking disgusting. Uh, You see the whole thing coming out of his mouth. It's got like a really nasty, like plump texture to it, which makes it look really real and believable. It's, it's the power of practical effects. I mean, he's throwing this thing up. She's selling it. I mean, she's screaming at the top of her lungs. And then there's this really great moment where he like gives it a final hurl and it starts to release from his throat and out his mouth. It like launches him back against the lamp. He knocks the lamp over. It's very physical. You see all the foams splattered all across the ground, all the slime and everything. It is truly a standout moment in this film and 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 like i said earlier there are moments that hit in this movie it's surprising they hit as well as they do but i can't deny that this is a phenomenal sequence it's fabulous it's i mean again this is probably one of the moments also that that made me as a kid be so like fascinated by this movie and thrilled by it because this is a great effect. Yeah. It it comes out of his mouth and then it scuttles under the bed and it grows in size and and takes on like almost a human form. And then it like crawls out from under the bed and it's, it's a human form basically, except it has no legs. It just has these like little flippers or something. And as it's going out of the room, it turns and looks at them and it basically is Kane. 
and it smiles at them and takes off running into the hallway. It's a really great example of like some phenomenal practical effects. The fact that they were able to make this thing look remotely like Kane is really impressive to me. I mean, they got certain aspects of his features down really well. His mouth, especially the way it smirks, the way that the mouth kind of cocks up on the side. It's one of the, the, the best looking effects in the film. Oh, it's yeah. This fucking tequila worm. I'm all for it, but they, they run out of the room to look for the kids. And as they're moving through the hallway, the thing drops down from the ceiling and it's much bigger now. And it's much hokier looking as well. Yes. At this at this moment, it becomes a little hokey looking, but it throws them both through the door of the other room and they hear Carol Ann and Robbie crying for help. And Stephen like gets up to go to them, but is immediately grabbed by the neck by the creature and it like lifts him off the ground. And then he and then he blows the smoke into this thing and causes it to like basically fly off and disintegrate. So it's the smoke. I'm assuming that Taylor blew into his mouth earlier in the film as like protection so that comes into back into play i liked how that tied back like i think we needed something to tie taylor back in the fact he was like okay you guys got this now like he was basically like a kind of like peace out for a while but i like that he did kind of like leave steven with something something specific to him specific to his character um because as for as bad as some of this green screen is at times here and it gets worse um, that whole moment of him being lifted up into the ceiling, that's all really physical. This whole finale finally feels uh, like things are gelling a bit. Like, it's big. Like, it is a big finale. It's a big finale in a big movie, but it's finally starting to kind of find its pacing a bit here for a while. Yes, and it's unfortunate because it's the last 15 minutes of the film. But, I mean, th- this is this is great. Like, what we get in this 15 minutes from the moment that Steven begins to uh, verbally and physically attack Diane up until them arriving back at Cuesta, Cuesta Verde is great. Okay. It's, but kind of what comes before that and after that is it's a little not great. Yeah. Another thing I like Troy in this moment or like in this whole sequence is there's two key moments here in which they're kind of wandering the house. And for the first time in a while in this movie, you've got like a little bit, a little bit of suspense There's not a lot of suspense in this movie at all, but you've got these two sequences here where they're kind of running around looking for the kids. You've got this great moment where, where Diane opens up a closet and those zombie bodies like pour out for a moment. It ends up being nothing but like vacuum cleaners, but for a second, like she sees these zombies and it's a pretty cool moment. Yeah. I like, I like the whole searching through the house. It becomes very frantic. And right after she gets that vacuum cleaner scare, Robbie then comes out of the other closet, charging at her with the fucking football helmet on, scaring the shit out of her. And she's like, where's Carol Ann? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. So they run outside, go to the garage, and inside they do find Carol Ann hiding in the car. And initially she won't unlock the door because she's scared of her dad because she witnessed what he did upstairs. And he's like, Oh baby, no, 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 that's not, that wasn't daddy. And then all of a sudden, like the, the wires from the garage door pull away from the wall and like all these electrical wires start to pull away and start like attacking them. Okay. This moment, let's, they've been really uh, hitting a stride here for a moment. And I feel like at this point they start to lose it a bit because there's something just really cheese dicky about watching these metal goddamn fucking tubes 
start to come off the walls. Like the garage itself starts attacking them. So they all get in the car. It gets them all in the vehicle. And so like all these like metal kind of like pipes are hitting them, but they're all very like, just like limp. And they're just like, just like kind of flapping at them. It's really not very threatening. And then the, that goddamn dog comes in. And it feels, it feels like homeward bound on crack for a second. He has, he grabs one of the wires and is like wrestling with it. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, everything's attacking them. Wrenches fly off the the workbench and smash the headlights of the car. Um, they they Carol Ann finally lets them in, so they all get in the car. And the car, of course, won't start because, hey, it's been sick. And we get chains that, that wrap themselves around the bumper so that when the car finally does start, it's, they can't really pull away. We get that fucking chainsaw. The, chainsaw, the fucking man. chainsaw that, that, com- that starts by itself and comes off the workbench and starts like, sawing the car i mean this seems unusually um visceral considering overall like the context of the the last film like and and you know when things went down it was effective it was wild it was scary but it was never like chainsaws ripping through things like it just it, it feels like there uh, feels like a, a, unexpected i guess it's not necessarily a bad thing i didn't anticipate it I actually like this sequence a lot. I like when the, the chanting score starts to kick in and yeah, the car, the chainsaws coming at him. What if it was a nice little nod to Toby Hooper, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely like, I, you know, I say with a lot of my reviews, I say, I'm always looking for the moment that raises the stakes. I mean, you can't raise the stakes much higher than being trapped in a car with a, like a, like a fully uh, sentient, uh, possessed chainsaw, just sawing through your, the ceiling of your vehicle, sawing through the hood of the car. I mean, it's fucking this car up. There's a few moments here and there where the green screen doesn't completely blend, but there are a few shots of the chainsaw that are actually pretty fucking effective. So yeah, it, it's it's quite threatening. It's like busting through the glass. Yeah, I do enjoy this moment a lot. Yeah, and finally, I mean, finally, Steven's able to pull away. He pulls the bumper off the car and just busts out of the garage. And we see once the car gets on the street that this car has been fucked up. It's, I mean, it's fucked up. There's screwdrivers and wrenches sticking out of it. Paint's been splattered all over it. The whole, I mean, it's, they fuck this car up, but they're able to squeal and get go away. And they drive immediately to Cuesta Verde. And when they get there, you know, or the, along the way, there's a moment where like Diane tells Carol Ann, she's like, it was very smart of you to hide in the car. And Carol Ann's like, yeah, but it wasn't my idea. Taylor told me it was the only safe place to hide. So, you know, Taylor's, uh, his presence is still being felt. Ta- uh, Carol Ann listened to him and she, you know, saved the family, basically. They go to their old property and they, they start walking to the lot and the lights come on. And immediately Tangina comes out. Does this fucking bitch live in the live in their pool now? This is her home now. I mean, does she she lives in this cave, right? Because she's there constantly. This whole final moment, everybody comes together. It seems very, um, like very like pre-planned. Like, of course, she's there. You got Taylor there. He's performing Native American chants with his, you know, traditional makeup in front of the fire. Like, it feels very much like just paint by the numbers, like you said before. I'm gonna say, I very much hate this ending. Um. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, I I don't like what what happens here. It just it's so fucking cheesy, and especially now when the effects have gotten to look even worse. Like I really wish we could have just got an ending like the original, like where they, you know, they pull away from the house after being attacked by the chainsaw. They go to some place. I don't know this. 
is stupid. Okay. Everything that happens is, is fucking stupid. And the fact that it looks stupid now makes it worse. But yeah, yeah. they they're supposed like, I don't know, they go down into the cave and all of like the skeletons are still there. These skeletons have been like nobody cares that there's skeletons in this public public place. I don't know. Uh Diane says that they all die because they worshipped him. And then Cain's skeleton screams at them. And then all of a sudden, somehow Diane and Caroline are pulled into this other dimension. Oh my god, like this really awful green screen of them like silhouetted in like a blue light get just like yanked into this other dimension. It's so cheesy. And then Steven hears like Taylor's chanting, so he runs and follows it and he finds Taylor, like you said, yeah, all painted up. He's at a, he's in front of a fire doing his chanting. And he basically says to Steven, the only way that you're gonna be able to defeat them is to be a family. And then like this mound of heads comes out of the fire. <laughs> It, this is a movie that has some really great effects, but for every great effect in this movie, I feel it is balanced out with an effect that is not so great. Some of them are green screen and some of them are just really bad practical effects. And I don't know what this giant accumulation of Manchi faces <laughs> just blob together, these rubber doll faces. Like, what is this supposed to be, Troy? Please. You know the poltergeist lure. Please, uh, the lower, tell me what, what this what this is supposed to be, because I have no idea. This looks like they saw something in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and they tried to replicate it, and they failed. Well, the one looks like Caroline, that's all I know, and it screams. No, it doesn't. Well, it's- <laughs> Come on. <laughs> It's supposed to look like Caroline because it screams, Daddy, help me. Oh, my God. And then they came. Uh, Taylor's like, the only way is to jump through the flames. <laughs> so him and uh, Stephen and Robbie jump into the flames and you get this ridiculous, ridiculous green screen of the family like floating. <laughs> Listen, I cannot man. explain how fucking stupid this looks. Listen, man, this, so, okay, so this whole sequence, I, you know, we watched another film from around this era, uh, for one of our patrons, Return to Oz, which incorporates a lot of green screen, but there is a free falling sequence in that movie that is very similar of Dorothy kind of falling through all these like crystals. And it's amazing to me that another film, same era, same kind of concept pulled something off um so much better i mean it was still clearly green screen but like this looks at times like unfinished like you see the seam around the actors at times like you see like that kind of thin green line around them that just looks like they've not completely been like blended with the 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 background behind them but it literally is just a bunch of people free fall and for a, like a 10 minutes just free falling through light blurs and colors and strange backgrounds people getting pulled into orbs of light at one point carol ann starts to age that's really cool when she like starts she starts to turn into like the the corpse the husk of the corpse that looks really cool but i mean it is just i imagine like imagine taking acid and watching this scene troy it would be horrifying it would i mean it is so much it is a sensory overload and it doesn't really like i get it like they're having the final battle and so forth but at the end of the day i don't know what it i don't know what it represents what it signifies but 
it's it happens so quickly. There's not even a battle, Roger. That that'd be different if like they actually had to battle anything. They don't. Yes, the creature comes. Like it comes and it's like attacking them, but immediately uh Taylor sees this and he throws through the flame. He throws them um the lance. He's like, "Here, Steven, take the lance." And Steven takes the lance, throws it at the demon right away. It fucking kills the demon. The demon flies away. And in the meantime, like they fucking Diane somehow loses grip on Taylor, uh, Carol Ann. And we get this ridiculous, ridiculous scene of Carol Ann flipping. Just fucking flipping. somersault. <laughs> <She just> somersault. <laughs> so, I mean, this is basically what they're floating in right now is like, like is, is these, this other, cause they keep talking about this other kind of realm that wraps around, uh, you know, their existence. They talked about this earlier. So I think what we're seeing is that right now. And then basically the light she's getting pulled to is like basically she's just going to fucking pass on to the other side, right? Like yeah. that's yeah. supposedly she's flipping through the air. They're screaming after her. Diane's like, no, Carolina, don't go. And then what happens? God damn it! That old broad, the one that the grandma <laughs> with the with the with the accent. She's an angel now. Oh, I mean, she looks lovely. She's got this flowing robe. It actually looks quite grand. I mean, we've got some like virgin mother looking shit going on here. But she comes back with Carol Ann, of course. Everything is okay. Uh, and it's supposed to be meaningful and impactful. But we kind of forgot that grandma existed. So she's like had no impact on us since, you know, the ver- the first 10 minutes of the movie. So it's kind of like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about her. So it does feel kind of like, ah. Uh, Okay, like I guess I'll take it. The grandma brings Carol Ann back. Yeah. And she's so, yeah, she's all lit up, backlit, and she has this big flowy thing on. And she smiles and floats away. And all of a sudden, they're transported right back to the cave where Tangina's like, thank God, thank God. And then they, they get out of the cave and they, 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 they leave the cave and as they're leaving, Taylor makes the comment that the car wants to go home with him. And then Steven like very freely gives Taylor the keys to his car. And it's like, here you go. It's yours. I mean, after everything he's done, I guess he's earned that fucking car. Yeah, I got that. But like, it's, weird because even Robbie's like dad you gave our car away how are we supposed to get home and do you notice Tangina just disappears she fell back in the she fell back down the hole she's there no she's there with the group one one second and then when it cuts back she's gone she, she must have went back yeah and so the film ends with the family chasing Taylor because they need a ride home and I know it's supposed to be uh, light yeah, but it's dumb. It's dumb. Yeah, it's supposed to be like, oh, oh, we're ending on a light note. And I'm like, I don't want to end this on a fucking light note. Like, I mean, God damn it, I, this whole movie, I've not known exactly like what they wanted me to feel from beginning to end. Like, I just don't feel anywhere near as connected to the characters as I did in the first movie. And that's shocking to me for to have characters that are established in a film and then to follow it up with a sequel that makes you feel like less toward like less about them less passion less uh concern like i just don't care about them as much and the fact that they managed to you know make a movie in which they seem just so paper thin it's baffling to me i mean it takes a really uh a pretty 
I hate to say bad like writer, but like, I mean, the, the script for this, like, I just can't believe that someone didn't sit down and look at this and say like, wow, this is a downgrade from the original material. I think you hit the nail on the head again. And the fact that the characters in this film are nowhere near as endearing or likable as they are in the first film or even established. And I was like, when I was watching it, like, I was like, you know what? Like, even like the character of, of like Robbie, you know, is, is not, not given much to do in this film and just comes off as being like this little shithead a lot of times. And I think like there are streaks in this film of these characters the writers making them unlikable, which is just not the right route to go. When we were so um, we were so enamored with them in the first film, that's one of the things that makes this the first film so fucking effective. Is the family dynamic is so believable, and you care about them and you want them to be safe. In this film, it's like okay, well, you know, they tried to recreate a couple of the dialogue scenes from the first film between the family, but it just like falls flat. And then making like Steven, giving Steven some like very negative aspects in terms of how he interacts and what he says about like the Taylor character. It's just very off putting. Um, and yeah, there's not really a cohesive story that like flows through this film. It's just like, random let's see what can stick like you mentioned and then this ending is absolutely abysmal and it makes no sense like the ending the ending does not is not justified in terms of how much we've built up to it and how much has kept being said about oh you guys need to come my point with with uh, the whole conversations between Taylor and Steven throughout the film with Taylor constantly telling Steven, you need to find your courage because you're going to have to, you need to find your courage. You're going to have to be brave. That's leads to nowhere because the ending is not even Steven protecting his family because what happens is Taylor throws him the thing that he's able to, it's not even Steven becoming brave and doing anything. It's just this whole ending is fucking ridiculous. It's rushed. Uh, that, uh, it just it's frustrating it's just so overdone and but i mean the movie like i said from the beginning was overdone the original film took its time it established a sense of of fear in the audience that kind of kept growing and evolving and developing as you learned more about what was going on so by the time the final showdown happened it was uh impressive in its in its overall scope and scale because it built up to that whereas this movie i think it felt like they felt like okay well people already expect something from this so when we come in and we start this we've got to start at the exact same kind of the note that we left them on we've got to maintain that from the beginning moving forward i would much rather that they would have started on a like a, a simpler note and again, built up to something bigger because the whole movie feels like it's trying to be a finale. Like the whole thing feels like they're constantly trying to like just rush through this really convoluted story so they can show off a few really cool sequences, but overall it, it feels very loosely strung together. And so I think this is an example of a sequel that really does the series more harm than good because like, as we said, it makes you feel less towards the characters. In fact, because of the bad writing, some of the choices they make, some of the things that they say, some of their choices of dialogue make them significantly more unlikable. And that's a shame because, yes, the first movie really uh, showed a great depiction of an average everyday suburban family. I do also think that lacking that teenage character, just completely omitting her existence from the storyline, like, I don't love a recasting 
But in this, in that case, with that, you know, in that situation, considering what happened, to completely just remove that character removes a huge key element of the family dynamic, and it's one of the reasons that family dynamic in the first movie worked so well. And I just miss having her presence. Like I miss having a teen presence in general. This family unit would have done well with that. I think they really could have played that in a factor of an additional kid in there who was a little bit more matured and grown and had a different kind of view on these things after having gone through that experience with her family, uh, was processing it at a different age. Um, I miss that. I think that would have been really welcome in this current situation uh, that we're experiencing with the family now uh, because it just feels like they're missing something. It feels like they're lacking something that they had in the original film. Yeah, and you know, watching it, I can see why young, you know, 10, 11 year old Troy enjoyed this film so much. There's a lot of things in this film that as a, as a kid you're watching, you just don't understand. You're, but when you see like a, a grown man puke out a worm and you get chainsaws cutting through cars and shit, that's, that's exciting for a kid. Now, adult Troy, now knowing everything I know and just my experiences, I realize this film is just, yeah, it's poorly written, poorly paced, and it's just a really bad companion to the first film now i'm not saying like there aren't really there aren't fun things about the film there is this film is pure nostalgia even like when i started to watch it again because i haven't seen it since for for years and i was like oh i felt just this comfort coming over me because it just there's a nostalgic feel to this film and i'm assuming a lot of people are going to feel the same way but if you sit down and look at this film objectively not based on like your childhood attachment to the film or something you're gonna you're gonna come to the realization that there, this film has a lot of issues and i still maintain that the poltergeist franchise should have never been it should have been a one and done because part two while better than part three still doesn't hold a candle to part one and really does nothing to continue the story part three even takes it more off the rails but uh, so I'm really curious, people, because I'm re- I know that this film is beloved by a lot of people. And trust me, I was one of those people before I watched it again. I would have went to bat for Poltergeist too. And, I, and I'm not saying I'll never watch it again. I'm not saying I hate this film or anything like that. It's just I realize how many issues it has as a film. When you're looking at characters, when you're looking at pacing, when you're looking at story, character motivations, things like that. But I'm really curious to hear, like, if you liked this film as a kid and you haven't seen it for a long time revisit it and let us know like what are your thoughts now or what are your thoughts about poltergeist in general are we way off the mark is this a great companion to the original what do you think i really want i'm really curious because this is a title that has been kind of close to me for a long time so i'm, I'm wondering if i'm wondering what you guys think about it so please share in the comments your thoughts on poltergeist 2 um and as we storm towards our 100th episode roger we got to reveal what is going to be episode 97. You know, we've promised, you know, for a while here that we're going to start incorporating, you know, some of our fan requests. And I think it's important that we really do this because you guys are what make this tick. And if we're giving you what you want and we know that the children are happy, they're going to keep on listening to the show. So I finally thought, you know, I'm going to i'm going to make the call i am going to go ahead and just kind of pick a random title that's been requested by one of our diehard fans and jason purcell's been very supportive of us for a while now and uh, he's been requesting titles for a hot minute you know and and we haven't really 
acknowledged any of the requests other than the one month we did like kind of like a random like shake it up let's see what we end up with we picked some random titles and, and we went with that but you know i i just i reached out to him and i was like listen if you could pick one if you could have us cover one title that you think would be make for a really fun review which one would it be and he said roger i really i i just need you and try to review anthropophagus uh, that Italian movie with that crazy man eating people. <laughs> that movie, you know the movie I'm talking about, Troy. You know the one, right? I do. Anthropocopus, the Grim Reaper. Yes. Yeah, I've never seen it. Oh, I've seen it. It's been a, it's been a minute. I but I have seen it. I actually, it's I, I'm curious to check it out because it's been a while. Uh, I actually really like Absurd, which is supposed to be like uh, like the unofficial sequel to it. So. I'm really, really curious to check this out. It, it's um, Joe D'Amato. So I'm I'm super curious to check it out again because it's been a while. I know it has some pretty graphic scenes. It was, you know, one of the video nasties for a while. I think it'll be a fun one. It's it's kind of unlike anything we've, we've done. We really haven't dived into like the Italian horror, which actually I'm a fan of. So I am really excited to be covering something that sort of falls under that umbrella. Yeah. I think that this is going to be a new territory for us, but I think that this is a territory that uh, we need to tread on because it does open a brand new world of potentials for titles for us to cover. I love Italian horror cinema. We have covered like the demons, um, the original demons film uh, a long time ago. And I really love that movie. And I, I, I just think that this is, the natural step to take coming up to our 100th episode. You know, I think it's time that we at least take one episode to honor our fans and say, you know, we hear you, we appreciate you and we want to give you what you want. So Jason, this is for you. So Jason, thank you. And then if you, if you guys have any requests for a film that you'd like to see us cover, shoot us the, the title via Facebook, via email, dark night of the podcast at gmail.com through our Instagram. Just, Hey, it's just, Send us requests. We're gonna we'll start tracking them and definitely start getting some of your requests on the show because hundred episodes in, we're gonna start needing some suggestions. <laughs> Our lists are dwindling. Actually, no, my list is not dwindling, but you know, the more to pick from, the merrier. So send us those suggestions. Let us know your pol- uh, your thoughts on Poltergeist two, and then join us next week for Anthropophagus, aka the Grim Reaper. Oh, I can't wait. I based off those posters alone, I'm fucking excited. That man just eating those organs. Baby baby eating. Yeah, we get all kinds of shit. Whew. So join us. Dark night of the podcast. We'll see you next week, guys. Yes. Good night. Good night. Good night.